Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Time for another episode, a movie episode. Vampires of 1979. Part seven of eight. We are so close. You have <laughs> so close. Almost made it. <laughs> I think this was a wonderful theme. I have had so much fun. It's been nice to have a, a focus. A focus. It has. And then I think from here, we're actually going to pivot 180. I don't know how you would describe that, but we're going to do um, a cyberpunk strange and beautiful book club go cyberpunk <laughs> we're gonna do some cyberpunk. for the next i don't know six months or something. <laughs> we're gonna do like a cyberpunk takeover i guess i don't know we're gonna do cyberpunk books that's what's gonna be our theme for the next six months 2024 the year of cyberpunk isn't it cyberpunk 2020 what is that Seven, 2077 oh there you go you got me like confused and i was like most, oh my god are we on most the cyberpunk novels of the like 80s and 90s take yeah. place in like the distant year of 2018 <laughs> <laughs> well that sequest takes place in 2018 and then i think blade runner takes place in 2019 yeah so we're actually yeah. we are we are in the futuristic world of cyberpunk so we might as well just lean into it right so we're going to be doing um just a whole deep dive not random but we're going to be exploring the origins of cyberpunk. So if you want to keep up with what we're doing, we do have an Instagram. I never plug it anymore, but we do have one. It's almost at 600 followers. Can I get that for my Christmas present this year? Can just somebody go and follow us, make it 600? <laughs> Hopefully it's still close to 600. We didn't just like lose 10. And everybody has to follow <laughs> us. Um, we do have an Instagram. It is strange and beautiful network. We also have our website, which is strangeandbeautiful.club, which has links to our Instagram and our merch store and all the other stuff that we have. And we do have a Patreon as well. And we do have patrons. We have like eight of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we have a fairly active Discord, considering there's like four people in it. <laughs> So if you want the opportunity to talk directly to us, if you're like, man, I really love listening to Rachel and Matt, and I just wish they would rant at me. Uh, off air as well you can go to the discord um, but to do that you have to join the patreon and I keep thinking I'm going to do more with the patreon and then I'm like yeah but there's like four people and I interact with most of them on, on discord and then I'm like no one is going to come and join the patreon if you don't do more with the patreon so I'm in this weird space save me save me from this space go join the patreon give me motivation to do more with patreon um, but in the meantime we watched a movie it a took three hour movie. Three days to watch this three hour movie. And I really feel like we should preface this with we very unfairly mixed watching Salem's Lot with watching what is, in my belief, 
the single greatest cinematic achievement of our generation and any generation ever, which is the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson. The first annual family watch through. (laughs) We needed the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We needed a breather. If you follow me on Instagram, which you totally should, I announced that our episodes are going to be on a slight delay. And it's because, I don't know, just sometimes you need a moment, you need a family moment. And we needed a family moment and we took it. And the way that I decided we would celebrate that was by. Uh, starting a first annual every December, we will watch the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. So we forced our eight-year-old and our 10-year-old to sit down and watch three, three-and-a-half-hour movies. Over the course of four days. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I opted to not watch the extended editions, so it was not as painful as it sounds. And we gave them boxes, which they had to sit in while they watched them. Uh, they enjoyed that a lot. That sounds like torture, but it totally wasn't. And they had a really good time, and we had a really good time. But then when they would go to bed, we'd put on Salem's Lot. So we went from... Lord of the Rings, which, again, someday we will do that. And it will just be a love letter to the universe because I have no notes. And then we put on Salem's Lot, and it was good. I mean, it's not. It's, it was fine. It was Salem's good. Lot yeah. was surprisingly good. Yeah. I, I had very low expectations based on some of the other <laughs> 1979 vampire movies that we've watched. We have compared, yes. I liked it. Yeah. I, the dialogue was snappy yep. and witty. The characters were allowed to be clever, which I love, especially when the antagonists get to be clever and witty. Yeah. And they're not just mustache twirling villains. Right. Yeah. Like bumbling mustache twirling villains. Um, yeah. It's nice to have an adult protagonist in comparison to a lot of... I don't know, the plethora of like teenage hero movies. I feel like that's the moment right now is the plucky teenagers saving us from the evil adults. The adult machinations that have ruined the world and now the plucky teenagers must wrench it back from the jaws of death. And it sells well for books. Yeah. To have the the plucky teenager saving the world. Like Hunger Games and Maze Runner and Divergent and... Which which are all young adult book series. Which have been made like into a, movies. Yeah. yeah. So it's nice once in a while to have a protagonist that is a grown-ass adult <laughs> who's done stuff. And not and, for one minute is he fooled. Not for one minute is he fooled. And it the the conflict really is convincing everyone else around him that shit's going down. Right, which even then... The like the doctor is like, nah, you're you're kind of yeah lost some marbles there. Yeah. No, let me show you. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Oh, correct. Um, it's really nice when everybody gets to be in on what's happening and they're doing everything possible to try to prevent it. But the the villain is so smart and the setup is so thorough that there is no way to prevent it. So we don't have to have anybody act out of character. We don't have to have anybody act. We don't need to generate cheap conflict. We don't need to do something dumb to let the villain win. The villain is winning because the villain is evil and thorough and smart. Because and has good done this is be- dumb. <laughs> Not this time. Not this time. 
<laughs> I think I just talked about that. With space balls. I know. I I literally just used that quote on Feast, Sheath, and Shatter. <laughs> Good. Because I was talking about the bully character and how much the YA bully character just gets under my skin. The The red herring antagonist who you think is the big bad, but it turns out they were just the, the dumb bad. Uh, we don't have that character, which is really nice. Actually, I think most of the characters act. I mean, most of the characters are great characters. I really enjoyed this. Is the plot um, twisty, turny, and in depth and deep and meaningful? And it is not a complicated it story. It is not a complicated story. Arguably, this is one of the most popular movies that we are covering in this series this vampires of 1979 series it is not actually a movie it is a tv miniseries which right. aired in two parts we watched the smushed together three-hour movie version where they removed the credits they removed the recaps and they squashed them together and made one continuous three-hour movie and I think it plays really well as a movie. I can, I think for a moment we should probably put on some, some context because if you can imagine it's 1979, um, the other offerings on TV are like Gunsmoke and maybe a couple the of- The Andy Griffith show? <laughs> it's not good. Maybe like, I think The Incredible Hulk is the 70s. So you've got a couple of, you know, okay, Monster of the Week type shows and they're all right. And then you sit down and you watch this miniseries. It had to feel like, holy shit, that was amazing. Like The Last of Us of 1979, mm -hmm. where you were like, holy shit, this is movie-level quality. This is movie-level directing. This is movie-level acting. This is movie-level budget. And it's on my TV. Right. It's like a made-for-TV movie, but they split it into two parts, so you get lots more depth. You get to have the kind of movie pacing you expect from the 70s, but you're getting it on your TV. And it had to feel like, oh, my God. And you can understand kind of why this has the lasting impact that it has had because it had such a splash when it first came out. And additionally, the director of this, um, I think his name is Toby. It's T-O-B-E. It's, it's not Tobe, probably. It's probably Toby. Um, if there's an E on the end, it makes the vowel say its name. So it could be Tobe. I don't know. But but uh, names don't have to be phonetic. Names don't have to be phonetic. As I've been explaining to the kids. <laughs> the most important part of this is he is the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Before this or after? But ask. Context. <laughs> it makes a difference. Did he get this? Because he directed Chainsaw Massacre or... Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is 1974. Okay. So he would be directing this five years after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He also directed Poltergeist, that, that old chestnut. All right. And I just had to put this in here, Life Force, <laughs> which is the... Vampires from Space movie with Patrick Stewart, <laughs> which we will someday do and we will enjoy the shit out of because it is terribly awesome. Our favorite kind gotcha. of movie. Yes. <laughs> so he's a renowned horror director. He's, if you're into horror, you know him. 
So he got to direct this made-for-TV movie. And it stars some, at the time, pretty big names, like David Soule, who plays Ben, who's our main character. He Mm -hmm. was in Starsky and Hutch as, I think, Hutch. Okay. So he's... I mean, I, it was 50-50. I'm hoping I got the right one. I've never watched Starsky and Hutch. But he, he, I've he, heard of it. Yeah. It's like a, ooh, he was a, okay, you would know him. And then um, the guy who plays, not Stoker, but Straker, Straker. Richard K. Straker, uh, James Mason, he's pretty famous. He played in Lolita. And I wanted to take a moment and just, Lolita, have you heard of Lolita? No. Okay. It's one of those Stanley Kubrick films that, honest to God, if it wasn't Stanley Kubrick, no one would. Sometimes when you have the right name, you can get away with things for a really long time that if you didn't have the right name, you wouldn't. Because it's a movie all about this guy. Actually, James Mason plays the main character. And he is a professor who believes this 15-year-old woman, girl, this 15-year-old child is seducing him. And so he ends up starting a relationship with her mother so that he can be in close proximity with her. Oh. Yeah. And he calls her Lolita. That's not her name. Oh. Yeah. It's one of those ones where everyone's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so well shot. It's an exploration of the aging aristocracy of England and how they're trying to maintain their relevance by blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. It's pedophilia. So let's just... (laughs) It is what it is, okay. Because uh, if you made that into a young boy, nope, nobody likes this movie. If you, you the the woman they cast to be Lolita is quite mature looking. If they had made her look like a fifteen year old girl, like a child, mm. also far creepier. Right. So, anytime you can swap out characters in a story, and all of a sudden it gets real, real gross, just think a little bit deeper about some assumptions that you're making about what's going on in the movie. It's just a good place to start. That's our favorite gender swap thing to do. Anytime you can swap the gender and suddenly it ain't cool, maybe it ain't cool the first time around anyway. Anyway, that was my PSA about, guys, can we stop having a hard-on for Stanley Kubrick all the time? Yeah, he's got some good hits. He does. But are they all hits? I don't know. Just ask yourself that question. Look in the mirror and think deeply about that. Um, actually, James Mason only died like six years after this movie. He died in 1985. So he died shortly after this movie. I have to imagine it's because he grinds his face into this carpet at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely got something from Poor that. Poor guy. Yeah, this house. Ooh. <laughs> There's this white particle stuff falling from the Which ceiling constantly. makes a really cool effect. It has a really cool atmospheric effect, but it's probably asbestos insulation. <laughs> 100% is probably asbestos. Didn't we watch a movie where the snow is actually asbestos? Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. Yep. The white shit that falls on them is just legit asbestos. Yep. They're like, it's fine like we used to think radium was good for you it's medicinal (laughs) asbestos is medicinal it has an effect on your cells (laughs) (laughs) it certainly does oh show (laughs) and then we have uh mark petri petri i don't know mark Mark. (laughs) (laughs) uh we got a little punchy by hour three 
and uh, we renamed this guy fucking Mock. <laughs> Rachel was oh, punchy, sensitive about the fact that this takes place in Maine and nobody has a New England accent. <laughs> and as someone who spent their formative years, like high school, in Massachusetts, in a region of Massachusetts where it's very just neutral American accent. Yeah. It's completely reasonable that there's a town that doesn't have the like In Maine? the coastal New England accent. Uh, I don't know. I had a lot of So <laughs> Rachel ended up repeating a lot of lines with a Boston accent. <laughs> I was adding ambiance, okay? <laughs> she, she was adding her own headcanon. We should have done a watch All along. of these characters are actually speaking in a thick Boston accent. We should have done a watch along. They translated. They translated. <laughs> yes, the, yeah. but they translated for the, the neutral American accent. Readers. Yeah, and then we had to rewind because we went off on a whole, why do all the coasts always have uh, regional dialects? Right, you got Bahaba yeah. in Maine. And then you got Boston. <laughs> yeah. And then where we live in North and Carolina, then, there's the Hoi Toiters. New Jersey has its own accent. Yeah. North Carolina has the Hoi Toiters. Yeah. Oh. Uh, anyway, the only thing I knew this other, this guy, Lance Kerwin, from was Enemy Mine. He's the gunner at the very beginning of Enemy Mine, which we did an episode on Enemy Mine. And it's still one of my favorites. So if you haven't listened to our Enemy Mine episode, you should go back and listen to it because, one, it's a fucking brilliant movie. And we had a lot of fun talking about it. And I think it's a timely movie. And I don't know. It's just, it's a great movie. And then um, Susan Norton, the character Susan Norton, is played by Bonnie Bedelia. She plays in Die Hard. She's Holly Gennaro in Die Hard. That's why she looks familiar. Yeah. It's the hair. She's been in. The hair's different. A lot. Yeah. Cause she didn't have a perm. She doesn't have right. like an 80s perm because she's not in die hard for another nine years i was thinking she looks really familiar but i don't know what from she was on parenthood she's been on a like parenthood like she was a principal character in parenthood she's been in a lot when i looked her up i was like holy shit this woman busy good on her uh just like mark's mom yeah <laughs> mark. <laughs> mark your mom <laughs> <laughs> She's been in a ton of stuff, too. We should have done a watch along, because the number of times I was like, Mac, we should have gone to Cat Duncan. <laughs> I had so much fun. It was just, it really got me through the last part there where, I don't know. I love the fact that Mark, our main, one Mark, our main character, <laughs> um, his parents are, they have a meeting with a priest because he's obsessed with horror movies and horror genre stuff. <laughs> and And fantasy genre stuff. Yeah. Just, why are you in all this magic and shit? <laughs> I think the thing that really should have gotten him the priest meeting was him taking, like, holding the rope up to his dad and being like, tie me up, dad. <laughs> <laughs> and we, the one other guy we'll note before we move into actually talking about the movie, uh, too, I guess, is uh, Kenneth McMillan, who plays the constable. And I was like, it's the Blair, it's the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen from the... <laughs> From dude. 80s dude. And yeah. then uh, Larry Crockett, who, of course, is played by Fred Willard, who died in 2020. And he is like a that guy. 
He's in like everything. I was like, what do I know him from? And I couldn't pick out anything in particular that I knew him like from. Like I know he's in Wally. He's like the BNL CEO mm-hmm. when they watch the videos, but I couldn't think of like one thing that I knew him from. I think I just know him from everything because he's in like everything and he does a bunch of voices. He's just one of those guys who is in just like everything. He was also in fairy tale theater. And I was looking at fairy tale theater and I had no idea it was on for like five years. Yeah. Uh, it was a staple. And legit like house. everybody is in it. Yeah. At one point or another. And I thought maybe when we get done with come in 81 kilo, like forever night, we should do a mini series about fairy tale theater. Yeah. Because, oh, my God, like just a bunch of people were in it and they they did. I have like one memory of fairy tale theater and it's this guy eating a raw onion. (laughs) (laughs) You've never just eaten a raw onion like an apple? He, He eats it like an apple and he's like having a conversation with a character while eating this onion. And it just that's the only thing I remember from the whole series. And so I feel like I need to go back. And explore this. Hey, we had a at least one of the box sets. Yeah, you had, sets. your mom gave us the box set when we had our daughter. She was like, here, I have this for you. And I'm like, this is from the 90s. It is unvetted. I am not putting this in front of my <laughs> child. Um, anyway. Not, let's let's take a chance to avoid passing down generational trauma. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, me, let me look at this first. If I pass down generational trauma, it'll be intentional. Okay. <laughs> Like when our son was crying at the end of uh, Return of the King. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Our son, who is seven still, um, when Frodo fell off the side, he was like, well, Yeah, when he tackled no, Gollum off Frodo. <laughs> then he was like, Why did Gollum have to die? He was so upset. He was he like, He was upset about Gollum. He was like, Where is Gollum's redemption arc? I don't know why we didn't get. So we had to explain the concept of a tragic character. I was like, you know, sometimes there's these things called tragic characters, and it was tough for him because mm-hmm. uh, he liked Gollum, I guess. I don't, I don't know. He just really felt like Gollum deserved a second chance, and I don't know. I feel kind of proud of that. So, um, again, this is why it was super unfair for us to sandwich Salem's Lot with the Lord <laughs> of the Rings, but... Back to Salem's Lot. We start with our main character, Ben Mears, and he arrives at what was apparently his hometown of Salem's Mm -hmm. Lot, which in the book, it's Jerusalem's Lot. They shorten it to Salem's Lot, and then they just call it The Lot. And this book is usually described as a mashup of the haunted house slash monster genre. So it's a smush together of like... Because we get our haunted house, we get the Marston Manor. The Marston House. Marston House. Thank you. I was like, I think I remember the name of the guy that lives there. And then we also get, of course, that's where the vampires move in, set up shop. And in the book, and I get, I don't know, partially in the night in the remake, the Roblo remake, we talk a lot more about the guy who owned the mo- the bo- the little guy. The Marston House? Yeah, that one. We talk more about the guy who owned the Marston House, which was Hubie Marston, and he was like a a mobster, gangster, whatever. Uh, we briefly mention him in this, which is that he, uh, some children went missing under mysterious circumstances, presumed to be 
related to him. Right. So he might have been a pedophile, speaking of pedophilia. <laughs> and then he killed himself. And so this is like a And then oh. the, the abduction stopped. And then somebody moved back into this house and now two children are missing again. Yeah. So it's a question of is evil inherent in the building? Can a place be evil? Or do the people inside of it make it evil? And I would argue that if a vampire moves into the house, they make it evil. I don't think the house made the vampire evil. Especially if you're creepy Nosferatu-looking vampire guy, which is what Kurt looks like. And I don't know why every other character, every other vampire character is a traditional vampire character. Except Kurt, as the one guy calls him. Barlow. Barlow. Kurt with a K. <laughs> which <laughs> We see this, like, ambiguously European guy. Yeah. Uh, running this antique shop. Ambiguously Ca European. Straker, yes. Yeah. And it's called... So, going into this, this is a vampire story. Yeah, clearly. In 1979, which we've established uh, our, our, theory, our working theory that so many Dracula-based vampire stories came out in 1979 because the rights for... Bram Stoker's Dracula expired. expired. Yeah. And then we have this antique shop called Barlow Straker, which sounds really, really close to Bram Stoker. Yes. Don't adjust. <laughs> <laughs> it has the same mouthfeel. <laughs> yeah, except Barlow looks like the guy from Nosferatu, who only looks that way because it was a ripoff, a... Skirting the copyright lines, because I just read Dracula, and in the book Dracula, it's the it's his canines that are sharp because he's talking, and only when he smiles can you see his sharp teeth. Right. So clearly, he does not have the front two sharp teeth like we get in this. We get in Nosferatu. We got it in the Nosferatu the Vampire remake. Um, it's sort of pervasive in the culture simply because of Murnau's adaptation. Right. Where he had to be like, oh, no, this isn't the same one. See, Those, the teeth are different. See, it's his incisors and not his canines. Pfft, come on. This is completely an original idea. I did. I totally, I totally, totally, totally made this up on my own. Uh, yeah. I did list the characters that die in order, but I think we'll get there. We actually start two years in the future. We start oh, yeah. with um, have a flash forward. Yeah, Ben and Mac and they're in Guatemala. And they go to this church and they're filling up their, their water and it's glowing. And they're like, they found us. And then they're like, boop, 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 this boop, totally, two years earlier. This totally felt like a bait and switch for me. <laughs> that <laughs> was like, we get these like rugged, scruffy guys <laughs> in this like abandoned church. And they're filling up water bottles. And then as soon as he fills it up and closes it, it starts glowing. And I'm like, oh, like, this is going to be hokey. <laughs> Hokey <laughs> vampire hunter, like, You're like monster. No, I'm gonna battle thing. One. Okay, sure. Yeah, but then Matt didn't even notice the title card that says two years earlier. So to him, we just never went back to that storyline. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "How is this related?" And, like, <laughs> and this was an hour, like two hours and fifty nine minutes in. He was like, "Oh, we're finally back to Guatemala." Yeah, honey, because it's finally two years later. What 
wait. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that makes more sense. That makes so much more sense. Uh, But he's trying – he actually goes to this rental office or like real estate office, which I was like, oh, God, can you imagine? Okay, say you have social anxiety, right? At least right now you can go online and fill out form. Like you can find apartments that are available and do like a digital tour and then fill it out. Can you imagine just – cold going to a place and walking into a real estate office and being like, I would like to rent something, please. Completely not knowing what's available, how much it's going to be. Having, how long it's going to take. How long it's going to take. Not, oh, my God. Just the thought is like, whew, of course, there were half as many people in the world. So, Well, he did have a plan going in. He wanted to rent the, the Marston house. house. Yeah. He assumed it was going to be available. He walked in and he was like, hey, oh, this actually Matt was like, oh, I really liked that dialogue because he's like, I'm looking for a place to rent. And the guy's like, OK, how long? How long? Six months. Furnished? Yes. Pet or family and kids? No. So it was a very like, OK, let me get all the information I need. And then he says, well, you know, I don't really have anything furnished available right now. And he's like, okay, cool. How about the Marston house? And this is actually Fred Willard's character. And Fred Willard's character, who is... um, Larry. Larry. Larry is like, oh, oh, that just sold. I just closed on that. Hmm. It's not available. Sorry. And he's like, ah, shoot. Which, can you imagine if he had rented it? I mean, I guess theoretically it's furnished. There's chairs and shit in it. (laughs) And shit. (laughs) And cancer. Honestly, the most horrific part of the entire movie for me was once we finally went into the Marston house. But that's because I have a weird thing about dirty textiles. Don't, I can't even, you know what? Sometimes when you're a little bit neurospicy, sometimes you have these things that you can't really explain to people. And to me, it's unfamiliar textiles that I perceive as dirty. And so this entire house like the carpet and the the like wall drapings and the furniture and everything is just covered in i don't that was probably the most i was like literally nauseous during that entire part especially when people would like sit in the chairs or somebody has to lay down on it (laughs) or that guy smushes his face into the runner on the stairs oh it was horrific but he ends up staying at this i guess like a boarding house yeah um, where they apparently don't have locks on the doors because the owner of the boarding house is just constantly just in his room. In room. Everybody is just constantly in his room. And reading his <laughs> and, reading, yeah, his, reading his unknown manuscript. <laughs> and there's a part where he's sitting and he's like looking. And then we just see him like silhouetted against the Marston house sitting up on this hill. And I was like, oh, he can't possibly have like a window that just looks at the Marston house. He must be envisioning it in his mind. Well, no, apparently he has a window that's just like full frame. The Marston house is directly outside of it. Okay. Uh, I guess that makes it make more sense at the end when they light it on fire. And Mark is like, no, the wind is blowing towards the town. Because I was like, it's off by itself. What's it going to do? How's it going to light the town on fire? Well, no, I guess in the middle of town. Yeah, it's just uh, at the top of the hill. Yeah. And we get a little bit where, like, Larry goes over to talk to Straker because Straker is renting that, the house that he's putting his uh, antique business in. Larry is Larry. our Jonathan Harker. He is our Jonathan Harker. He's our uh, solicitor. Mm-hmm. So he heads over to chat with him and he's like, so is Kurt here yet? And he's like, oh, no, actually Barlow. They all call him Barlow. He's like, is Barlow here yet? And he's like, oh, no, he's on a buying trip. He's gallivanting about Europe. He's not here yet. Um, actually, though, I'm getting a shipment of a sideboard 
do you think you could go pick it up for me? I've got this other thing that I'm doing and I'm not gonna be able to get it myself. Two strong men, probably all you need, gonna be fine. You have to show up at midnight. And then he gives them these really detailed instructions. It's gonna be at this place. It's gonna be there at midnight. You need to get four padlocks with four keys. You need to make sure you lock the, you know, you can put it in the basement. Don't worry, you can use the little outside entrance to put it in the basement. Um, I need you to padlock the basement door the front door, the back door, the like, and then put, <laughs> all the doors and then put the keys in this one spot. I'll get them. Don't worry. But it is very important that they lock this up. Okay. Lock it up. <laughs> lock it up. And Larry is like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry's totally. got, he's oh, yeah, jotting it all down. Totally, totally. Not a problem. And so then he goes and he finds, uh, I guess, Ned who is, oh no, who does he hire? He actually hires like the town shipment guy, Cully, um, who is married to a woman that they everyone calls Boom Boom Bonnie. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> Bonnie and Larry are having an affair, which is the whole purpose of this. And Cully, her husband, is trying to catch them. So we end up with this. This is actually a really great setup because instead of having to create a situation where a professional like a person who is a professional delivery man doesn't follow instructions and is an idiot we actually just have him be like a jealous husband and he instead of going himself he hires ned the plumber guy and the dude who lurks around the graveyard whose name is i think his name is um mike mike ryerson so he gets mike <laughs> And Ned. Ryerson. Ryerson, yes. He gets Mike and Ned. And he actually swaps cars. And they go to pick up the thing. Because, I mean, he's just going to go pick up a box. He pays them each 50 bucks, which is like $200. And they leave to go get this box, which is one of the creepier scenes. Because we pick up this box, and the box itself is cold. And then they're driving, and the box is creeping forward towards them. Right. But... Which is not surprising because they didn't strap it down. Well, they're not delivery people. Okay? They're not delivery people. Yeah. And then we get a really, I liked the scene. I wasn't sure I was going to with Cully where he catches Larry and Bonnie together. Because mm -hmm. first Larry doesn't want to come over. And Bonnie is very much portrayed as the um, instigator of the affair. Oh, yes. Yeah. If you oh, want yes. me to come over. Oh, I love the part where she comes home and she's like, I'm going to need some fun in tonight. So don't get too drunk to her husband. And he's already like six beers in. Bunnin? That's okay. That's a new one on me. And I've read a <laughs> lot of romance novels. And then he comes. So, of course, Larry comes over. And so Cully is like, oh, shit, this is happening. She's actually having an affair. So he walks in with a shotgun and he marches Larry out. He's like, nice shorts, Larry. <laughs> you must have liked him because you kept him on. And then he. We get, I mean, this is a really tense scene because he's like, hold the barrel of the gun, Larry. He's like, okay, lift Point it at your face. Point it at your face. This is a five-pound trigger. I've got about three pounds on it already. Yeah. So don't move too fast. Oh, man. It's really good. And then he click, click, pulls the barrel, but it's never loaded. Yeah. And so then Larry runs off. And, of course, as soon as Larry runs out, we see like a hand come into the screen. And then <laughs> the frame freezes. And frame we freeze zoom, in. zoom of the 70s. <laughs> the the whoop. <laughs> Shit just went down. Uh, this is such a 70s move. I love it. It's like this beautiful little time capsule of how you amplified drama in the 70s. Mm -hmm. You couldn't really do slow motion. 
It's because you could do it in post. Yeah. Whereas zooming while you're filming would be a lot riskier to yeah. for timing and framing and stuff. Yeah. So it's it's when we really just had invented the steady cam. I mean, this is well the steady cam first gets used in Rocky. Yeah. Which is 1976. Um the guy who invented the steady cam, his friend was like, "Look, I got somebody I think is going to buy this, but I want you to film me running up these stairs." And the guy was like, "No explanations." Why? Like just film me running up the stairs, man. Just trust me, okay? That's how they sold it. Was like we can get somebody running up the stairs smoothly. Yeah. They're like, fuck, yeah. Without having to do the whole wire situation. Or a track in a cart. Exactly. So, I mean, it's fun. It's the, it's 70s. It's great. It's fine. They had, what, $4 million to work with, which we'll cover in a few minutes. But this is interesting because Larry just dies. I actually think he dies of a heart attack. So I think it's implied he dies of, like, fear, maybe? Because he's the one guy that does not come back. Everybody else. That's that's comes a good back. point. Yeah. Yeah. Because then he just died of shock. Yeah. In the meantime, our main character, Ben, is schmoozing this lady named Susan. He was just walking through the park. She was laying in the grass drawing. He came over and he was like, We should probably get together and uh I see you're reading my book. I see you're reading my book. We should probably, you know, do it. And she's like, Cool. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. She's an elementary art teacher but she's also like a graphic designer she describes herself as semi-liberated because there's a scene or where they're half liberated half liberated liberated because there's a scene where they're they're talking to each other and she's like i really like you and he like makes a face and she goes i know partially liberated woman states her feelings oh, okay <laughs> Ooh, that was a little there's good 70s and then there's bad 70s. And the Susan character is very, I don't know, there's that scene where she's going to go and interview. She's like, I got a job interview. I'm going to be in Boston for a couple of days. In and Boston. Like, and he's like, oh, okay. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure the words there are congratulations. <laughs> but Rachel was totally prepared for him to pull like a guilt card yeah You're like no you can't leave me i like you too much i can't believe you'd, you'd go so far away from me right Even now when we're just developing our feelings for each other and he doesn't and he's he actually doesn't. he's actually talking to another character and they're like well how do you feel about the fact that she's interviewing in boston he's like i'm trying to be happy about it thank you ben it's not great, but it's better than it could have been. He's trying. He's trying. And that's most of the way there. What is it? Your first thought is the way you were taught, and your second thought is who you're trying to be. So yeah. his first inst instinct was, I don't like it. His second was, this is an opportunity for her. I need to like it. Too bad she didn't just stay in Boston. Because as we find out, Susan is another tragic character, kind of like Gollum. All thanks to Mark, by the way. Fucking Mark. <laughs> so, I mean, for all that happens in this movie, a not a lot happens. Because then Larry, they're like macking by the lake, Ben and Susan. And they hear, quote, a traffic jam, which they're in a small town in Maine. I don't know what they thought a traffic jam was. But they come out and it's literally just like they heard two cars and one drove off. And, and they heard some doors. And they heard some doors. And there's Larry in his car. And Larry is dead. Okay. So for two cars to come up 
somebody get out and get in another car and leave. That means there had to be two people driving cars. Does Barlow know how to drive? Maybe. Why would he not? (laughs) I'm just imagining him driving down the road (laughs) in Straker's car. With his teeth? With his teeth out. (laughs) Window window down, head out the window. Somebody pulls up at the other part of the intersection. (laughs) Just turns and looks at him. (laughs) That would be really good. I don't know. I don't know. I think they were going to grab him and he ended up dying of a heart attack. That's what happened to Larry because he just went through something extremely tough. And then the less great part about the Cully wrap up is he goes back up and he's like, hello, Bonnie, here comes great big bear or whatever. And I mean, who doesn't love a little marital rape? Me. I don't love a little marital rape. That's what this Mm -hmm. is. This is a thing. And that's what this is. And it, I mean, it happens. It's supposed to be like he's reasserting his dominance or whatever, but luckily it's brief and those characters disappear and we never, never, never have to deal with it ever again. And the whole purpose of this is just that this gives us a chance to have um, the plumber and the guy that lurks in the graveyard really fuck up this delivery because somehow they get this box down in this basement. Somehow. Somehow. They... They just, we don't, who knows? They don't know. Nobody knows. They just That's get why the, we don't show it on that's film. That's why we don't show it on film. And then they're like, I'm going to open this shit up. It's like, I need to know what's in I, here. I got to know what's in here. And Mike is like, I really don't think that's a good idea. It's giving idea. sus vibes. I think we just need to wrap this up and leave. And they end up just fleeing because they get freaked out. And they get in the car. Oh, because they hear footsteps upstairs. Yeah. So they think, oh, no, shit, somebody's here. And so they get in the car and they're like, no, no, wait, the padlocks. And so they just toss the padlocks in the basement. <laughs> just throw them in. Shut the door and leave. That's close enough. That's good enough. The padlocks are close to the doors. Yeah. Um. Well, it's fine. I don't and know. And they what close the... the door to the basement. I honestly don't think it makes a difference because what would have changed? Right. Uh, whatever was in the box, because clearly... Barlow, shredded the box. Yeah. Those doors weren't going to slow them down. No, they're just going to break the doors. Not, they weren't going to be like, oh, it's locked. Oh, well. Oh, hum. Guess I'm stuck in the house. <laughs> Grounded. One of Rachel's biggest pet peeves is the, I'm stuck in the house. Let me go look out the giant floor to ceiling window and pine about Made how of I- like quarter inch thick glass. <laughs> and pine about how I absolutely cannot leave this building because the door is locked. Yeah, man. There's a lot of windows in this movie, and they are all, like, single pane, and they're, like, a eighth of an inch thick. And I was just like, wow, we worried about nothing in the 70s. We were like, energy, we just send that out into the universe, like, good vibes. That's fine. Heat, that can go. Air conditioning, bye-bye. You head right outside that window. No problem. Oh, there's, there's like, no air conditioning in there was the some. Northeast. Oh, oh, yeah, in the, yeah, in Maine, there would have been none. Oh, yeah, in But Maine. heat... Yeah, that's why your windows froze shut. (laughs) Because what window? That's why you had heavy curtains on. They were a suggestion of separation between you and the world. They were not a real separation between you and the world. It was an annual ritual in my house. Yeah, Uh, my brother and I were tasked with putting up the shrink wrap plastic on every single window in the house. Yeah, to just add that. 
that double pane insulation goodness <laughs> to the windows. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think the padlocks would, because Straker doesn't seem broken up about it at all, because he arrives shortly after they leave, and the whole box is blown apart. And we've seen some shenanigans happening around town already. And he actually has, like, a plastic wrap parcel, and he lays it on this table and opens it up, and it's a child. And this is Ralphie Glick. And actually, the first thing we see die, first person we see die in Dracula is a baby. So I guess this is on brand. Yeah. Nothing says the situation is shitty, like killing a child. And it's another one of my pet peeves because it's such low-hanging fruit. Of course, it's easy to make somebody seem evil if they kill children. Ugh, whatever. So Ralphie Glick is our first, he's actually our first vampire because, meanwhile, his brother, Danny Glick. So Ralphie and Danny were visiting Mock and... They left Mark's house and decided to travel through the woods because it's the Take 70s. A, sh- a shortcut. Because <laughs> it's the 70s and literally it was the safest possible time to be alive. That was sarcasm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so many serial killers. <laughs> so many serial killers. There was the perception of safety, but not actual safety. So they tried to go home through the woods. They get waylaid slash captured. Ralphie gets captured. Danny gets attacked because when Danny arrives at home, he's freaked out and he passes out. And Ralphie shows up at his window and this poor kid has to like. <laughs> he's like on a boom arm. <laughs> he has to like the window. And of course, his brother is like, ah. Yes. So he goes over and opens the window. There you are. Where have you been? Mom's worried sick about you. (laughs) So Ralphie dies first and becomes a vampire first. Then Danny becomes our second vampire. And that he's has. But it's drawn out. Yeah. He has persistent anemia. Apparently like, I don't know. Just I love how this is a contrast to most of our modern vampire movies when they just walk up and they're like, oh, they're missing a ton of blood. Like they don't have to do anything. They just look at them and they're like, they're real low on blood. Where did it go? As opposed to this one where they're like, uh, where'd the blood go? I don't know. Who gives a shit? He has persisted. It's anemia. not in his body anymore. Uh-huh. The stuff just leaks out if you poke a hole in it. <laughs> Maybe he peed it out. I don't know. It's the seventies. <laughs> we don't have medical training for this. <laughs> I don't know. How am I supposed to know? <laughs> just prescribe him some cigarettes. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> He's got a cold. Make sure he gets menthol. It's fine. So breathe in that flaky asbestos. It'll help. <laughs> so they take him to the hospital um, and they're giving him blood, which is the least blood looking blood ever because he ends up standing up and knocking over his IV pole and the blood falls out and it looks like juice. And then the nurse comes in the morning because they haven't checked on this critical child all night long. And he did. And then we cut to the funeral. And this is when Mike Ryerson, the... Is it actually Mike Ryerson? Yeah, his name is okay. Mike. Why? Oh, Ned, Ned Ryerson is Right, because you're always from... making jokes about Ned Ryerson. <laughs> and have we have heard... a character named Ned, and then the guy he goes to do this job with... Is Ryerson. Is Ryerson. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you seen the fan theory that Ned Ryerson is the devil? Yes. Yes, and that's what gets him in the whole yeah. problem. Yeah, because Because it's he not... makes a contract with him. 
Well, it's not the, until he buys oh, right. all of it. Not until he like buys all of the insurance that yeah, Ned it's is not until he signs the contract with Ned that he gets out. That he gets out. Yeah, but poor Mike is burying Danny's coffin after the funeral, which is like a shovel. I'm like, do they not have a backhoe or anything? He's just like the guy that works in the in the graveyard, and he's filling up the hole. And then he stops, and he's like. Huh. And then he jumps in the <laughs> it sounds like that it's happens really fast, but it's like twenty five minutes of him just standing by this hole while there's a breeze and there's thoughtful music. A hyperbolic twenty five minutes. Yeah. And he jumps in and he opens the lid and this kid does not look okay. He does not look okay. <laughs> eyes open, glowing, staring. <laughs> yes, I he's well at first his eyes are closed. Okay. And he just looks sort of grayish. And then he ends up opening his eyes and his eyes are all yellow. The contacts are yeah cool looking. They are cool. The like glowing yellow eyes are really cool. And Mike is like, well, I ain't never seen one do that before. <laughs> let, let me get a closer look. He ends up getting bitten. <laughs> and so Mike is our second to fall. So now we have three vampires. We have Ralphie, Danny, and Mike. And then Danny shows up at Mark's house. And Mark is not having it. Mark, because Mark is obsessed with horror movies, he's like, oh, no, no, you ain't Mark getting me. Mark is, he's educated on this kind of stuff. Yeah. It is his special interest in the occult that has prepared him to defend himself from a missing slash dead companion floating outside his window. Yeah, he's like, uh, I have With been glowing eyes. I have been preparing for missed. this. And my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> so much mist. But he ends up grabbing a cross and repelling Danny with the cross. And I liked, well, we commented while we were watching it about how this has a cool effect because they actually, uh, well, I guess this was when Ralphie shows up and bites Danny for the first time. Yeah. Or the, and the second time. There's this like unnerving like movement and it's because they filmed the whole thing in reverse of Ralphie like floating in the window where he like the real filming was he starts out with his mouth on Danny's neck. Yeah. And, and then they up. film it backwards. And so, so the, the mist is will, all yeah. moving backwards. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And the movement looks a little unnatural because it's in reverse. Which makes it even better. I mean, that's how they did the ring, the movement for the character in the uh, ring. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And then the next one is Marjorie Glick, which is Ralphie and Danny's mom. And this is the one where finally we get some other characters on board because the whole time Ben has been like, The doctor's like, yeah, the... They're just weak. Would They're just tired and they've down, been having bad dreams. It's persistent anemia that leads to death and then disappearing bodies. Sometimes when you have persistent anemia, you just evaporate. <laughs> That's where they're all going. God, keep We don't together. have any medical training for this. It's the 70s. <laughs> it's the 70s. That's in the diagnostic manual. I've seen it. I'm sure of it. No, I don't need to look it up. And so finally, Ben is like, I'm pretty sure these people are coming back as vampires. And the doctor's like, I am tentatively willing to believe you. And so they go to find Marjorie Glick, who is actually at a funeral parlor in Compton, like another place. Yeah. And one so, town over. One town over. So they're there and they're waiting. 
and he goes to check in on his family. Ben, or the doctor, goes to check in on his family. And Ben is sitting there taping together two tongue depressors. I don't know. You could have just bought a cross. I don't know. Maybe no gas stations were open. He couldn't find a thank you Jesus sign. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's the Northeast. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That, we live in what is referred there. to as the Bible Belt in the United States. And in the Bible Belt, um, religion is extremely pervasive. So uh, there are these and signs. And you have to advertise it. There are these signs that say, thank you, Jesus. And they are everywhere. About every third house. Yeah. And they people put them in their yard. They put them on their car. Uh, maybe that's why we don't have vampires around here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the druids that bless their entire forest. <laughs> That's a come in 81 kilo reference where Matt believes that if you can imbue any religious object with um, religious fervor and it will repel vampires, then can a druid bless an entire forest and make a vampire free forest? <laughs> Prove me wrong. <laughs> not, even gonna, not on this podcast. I'm not going to. <laughs> Uh, but Marjorie ends up coming back, and actually the the doctor slashes her with the scalpel, and it exposes like fat. It's really gross. The scene where he cuts yeah. her, yeah, and then they end up touching her with the tongue depressor, and she <laughs> dies. I don't know if she dies or if she just turns into mist and right puffs. I don't know. I don't know. And then we come back because Mark has told his parents that he saw his friend hovering outside his window and they were like that is it we are calling in a priest because so they bring in a priest for an intervention for because his because his horror movie you know what this it would probably seem funnier if i could not believe my mom would have absolutely done this if i had not been better at hiding my obsession with vampires and horror movies <laughs> especially with the whole satanic panic yeah yes um i was not allowed to watch vampire movies as a child i did anyway because that's how these things go and i completely but you know what i love about mark is he still just does it he's like i get that my parents don't like this but my entire room is horror movie themed right <laughs> they've humored me this long yeah i'll just keep doing it. and then they come in to talk to him about it and he just completely oblivious oh why do you have these handcuffs son oh because i learned how to get out of them dad put them on me <laughs> Instead of being like, oh, no, that's for me and my boyfriend. <laughs> and then he holds the rope up and he's like, tie me up. I could show you. I can get out of any knot. And so they have the priest come in to have an intervention because clearly he has been watching so many horror movies that now his subconscious is generating these horror-like images. And this is a problem. And so the priest is trying to talk to them. And there's like the lights go out. First, he tells him this is just a symptom of your psych, like your subconscious. And then the lights go out and the window breaks. And we look over at the sink and there is a black cloth lying on the ground. And then slowly the right, black cloth. Because the window like explodes. Yeah. Slowly the black cloth stands up. And it's Kurt Barlow. <laughs> Which AKA we don't we don't ever see him as a bat or a wolf or anything. No, no, he didn't talk either. He just he just he just got like cat sized. Yeah, I guess and broke through the window. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe um, maybe Straker wrapped him around a rock, <laughs> <laughs> threw him through the window, <laughs> because he stands up and he just walks over. And grabs Mark's parents' heads and just goes, whack, 
smacks them together. And apparently that kills them. I don't know. It's the 70s. They probably already had lung cancer. It's fine. Yeah. And then Straker comes in. Straker pops in through the kitchen door and he's like, ha ah! <laughs> Back priest, <laughs> back shaman, back shaman, because the priest stands up with his cross and he's like, "Back, holy man, back shaman," <laughs> which is honestly one of the best exchanges in the movie. This yeah. whole scene right here, I imagine in the book, this is probably longer. I got, I finally got the book. I had to wait at the library, like I had to wait to check it out, and I finally got it. So I'm gonna read it, and then maybe we'll rewatch it. We we'll, we will watch the remake with Rob Lowe. And I got totally distracted because that is a banging ass refrigerator that is in this kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, look at the refrigerator. Of course, Straker is standing right next to it. And it's got like a side-by-side door. I'm like, is the freezer on one side and the refrigerator on the other? I don't know. It's so cool. And it's probably still running. It's probably still running somewhere. (laughs) It's probably used, like you can watch the uh, kilowatt spinner go around on your electrical dial. (laughs) 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 every time it turns on it kind of oh is that a black mirror the episode where they move into a house and it already has a refrigerator and there's a civilization living in the freezer maybe anyway um they end up the priest trades his life for marks because straker tempts him with can you win in a battle of his faith versus your faith. Or a faith off. A faith off. <laughs> <laughs> Come, priest, have a faith off yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the vampire. I don't know if it works or not because we never see the priest again. I think Straker and Barlow wanted to get rid of the priest because ostensibly the priest is going to be the person most well prepared to combat them. Yeah. That proves to be false. False. Because this priest doesn't know what's up. No, it's the horror movie fan. When doesn't Ben go to see the priest? I don't think so. They go to a priest, the Catholic priest, to say, hey, can you help us out? And the priest is like, nah, I'm one of those like new priests. Remember the underlight kit? On the oh, yes. front of the church. The what the shit is on the front of that church with the... <laughs> why why is there a like twenty foot pendulum hanging from the <laughs> clock on the front of the with church? Like an, an with like a backlighting kit. A backlight kit. That is so bizarre. We were both like, what the shit? But is he's that? talking to the priest and the priest is like, nah, I'm one of those new priests. We don't go in for the like capital E evil stuff. It's lowercase evil. Lowercase e. Uh, that was when I was struggling to stay awake, and we ended up having to pause it for the. And so the, they're like, "We need some help. Can you please, you know, give us like this is this is the, what could have been the research scene." Yeah, we do get a research scene, but the priest is like, "Nah, we don't." We don't really go in for that, like, exorcist training yeah. stuff We anymore. do get a research scene. His friend, the the teacher, Ben Muir's friend, the teacher. Jason. Yeah. He has his research scene. He yeah. he provides our research scene. And, in fact, Ben calls a friend who lives out in Seattle. who Phone just a friend. Knows about vampires. Oh, yeah. He's tuned into the occult. He's tuned in. He's turned on to the occult is what he says. He could have just asked Mock. Mock, Mock knows. <laughs> 
It's sort of like in uh, Galaxy Quest when it's the fans of the show that ultimately know how to save them. Yeah. Yeah, that's Mark. So after all that happens, Ben is like, okay, clearly shit is going down. Everybody is, there's so many vampires at this point that literally everybody is a victim or a potential victim. So we have got to get out of here. So he tells Susan, get your mom, get out. I'm going to take your dad. We're going to go stake Kurt Barlow. And hopefully that kind of solves the problem because that's the best solution that we, we have. We just have to find his coffin during the day and stake him. And since we know... We, we know, know where he lives. Yeah, since we know where he lives, it's our best bet. That's what we're going to start with. We're going to do it. Get the fuck out of house, out of the house. And she's like, okay, cool. But first I think I'm going to run some errands. So first she goes to his house, his like room. And I think she to read his manuscript, like everybody else does, the homeless guy has done the man experiencing homelessness. Sorry, Weasel has done that. Um, Weasel, who apparently had a relationship with the lady who runs the boarding house, way back when she's like, I was visited by young Weasel. Oh, it was like back in the old days. Okay, the lady who runs the boarding house. I was looking up on IMDb. She has one of those fabulous black and white nineteen forties headshot portraits, and I uh-huh. was like, Oh, you were. You were something in the 40s, huh? So I looked her up. Yeah, she was in a bunch of B-movies in the 40s. She was like a okay. B-movie like actress, which explains the um, well-formed, well-supported chest that she is working with. Oh, yeah. And she puts off uh, some cougar vibes Yeah, when she's Get showing respect. Ben the room. Mad respect for this woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's definitely like, if you leave the door unlocked. I'm sure that <laughs> – okay, here, here's my headcanon on – her situation. Hmm. There sure are a lot of good-looking young men passing through town. If only there was a place that they could rent a room for a mm. short period of time where I could interact with them I could closely. probably arrange that. Hmm. Mm. I have a business idea. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she only ever breaks even on the costs because yep. she undercuts everybody else because she doesn't need to make a profit. She and, is but, making the only profit she wants to make. Exactly. Yes. You know what? As long as we're all consenting adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from there, Susan is like, well, the best possible course of action from here is to go to the Marston house and stare at it. So she drives over to look at the Marston house. And wouldn't you know it, out of the trees pops fucking Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Which. Armed uh, with some stakes. I think going up and just staring at the Marston house is like a local pastime. They don't. They don't need to go. She was in the boarding room, boarding house. She opened the window, and it was right out the window. She could have just stared at it. She's already in Ben's room. I know. She could have stared at it from the convenience of her own home. It's visible from every single residence. It was perfectly fine. She didn't need to go over there, but of course she goes over there. Which in a entire show full of fairly intelligent, fairly snappy, fairly fun, fairly consistent characters, this is the one thing where I'm like, Susan. Even the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen has fled this town. You need to get the fuck out like he told you to. But instead, she's like, I'm going to save Mark. And so she ends up sneaking in after Mark, which Mark has already made his way into the house. And so she ends up going into this house. And this is when I got extremely nauseous. This is when you got triggered. I was so this was scene was this is hard. The whole rest of it was like, Meh, you know. 
everybody has the things that actually horrify them. Mm-hmm. Monsters, meh. Deep water, get the fuck out. Dirty textiles, uh-uh, no thank you. Man-made objects in water, also no thank you. <laughs> These are my three very specific fears, and here we are. At least there's no water, but there is. It's just gross. It looks so gross. And there's these falling white particles that are falling through sunbeams. And it's really cool and really atmospheric. And I just was like nauseous the entire movie. Plus, for some reason, there's taxidermy, which I think this was maybe like the go-to in the late 70s to mid 80s. Yeah. If you're evil, you just had, you either were a taxidermist, you had taxidermied animals. Well, it's because... The growth path for a serial killer is killing small animals. And, oh, man, I'm generating these piles of small animal bodies. What do I do with them? Uh, Oh, hey, here's a hobby that can make this whole uh, endeavor look legitimate. Sure. Yes, there's a reason that I have a pile of small animal bodies. (laughs) It's It's because It's artistic. Because taxidermy is my hobby. (laughs) Sure. Um, There's a famous serial killer who started out. His dad was like, well, okay, at least you have a a legitimate interest. And so he like showed him how to strip bones. I can't remember the name of him. It doesn't matter. So Susan is wandering around. We get a couple cool scenes where Susan's looking around and Mark is looking around. And they're kind of like Laurel and Hardy walking past each other without actually seeing each other. The shots in this house look really good. The ceiling is approximately 25 feet tall. This is way bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So she ends up going up the stairs and she finds Mark upstairs and she's like, Mark, we got to get out of here. And he's like, I don't want it. I'm going to find you being gay. And she's like, no, we got to go, Mark. Don't you want some Dunkin'? Want Dunkin' Donuts, Mark? Come on, you can come out with me. Uh, but he won't leave. So, of course, Straker shows up and they're like, oh, no, he's caught us by standing in the doorway. <laughs> <laughs> and so he knocks Mark out. Yeah, Mark charges into the room, and then we see his body fall on the floor. Yeah, and so Susan follows after him, and he's like, "Uh, come with me, Susan. And she's like, ah, fine. And so she follows him. No, don't. (laughs) No, fine. Never go to the second location, Susan. There's a window right there. We all know. Be loud. Be weird. Stay alive. Yeah, and we know. Be rude. Be rude. Stay alive. It's like the counterintuitive. So actually the smart at the most... So statistically, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, statistically, the best thing to do if you have an intruder in your house is for you to flee, regardless of who's still in your house, your kids, your husband, doesn't matter. You flee because they don't know where you've gone and they know you're going to call for help. So that's the best possible chance you have of saving everybody in your house is to leave. The problem, sociologically speaking, is if then something happens to the people in your house, you're viewed as having fled. So it's right. counterintuitive. But the, honestly, the best thing for her to have done in this situation was to flee and leave Mark and come right. back with help, which she doesn't do. She just leaves with Straker. And so then Mark wake, wakes up and Mark is tied to this chair. Quite elaborately, too. This is like a Straker is. Baker knows some things about knots. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got some good rope work. He's got some rope work going here because he's got Mark tied up and he's like, that should hold you till tonight. Little did he know. <laughs> <laughs> he picked the one person in the entire town. 
oh man, you would need like three, 400 hours of practicing of getting out of yeah. complicated knots to be able to escape from this. Nobody around here is going to have right. been into that. Little did he know. And he's, he he's tied to this disgusting chair. And as soon as Stryker leaves, <laughs> he starts rubbing his back against the chair, like, like just he's really break, He's loosening the knots. It. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, Ben has realized that Susan is me-seeing. And so he runs over to the Marston house along with Susan's dad, who's the doctor. And he hesitates before going into the Marston house. Because he went there one time and he saw a ghost. I mean, I think in the book, it's probably set up better that this house itself is evil. Is evil because we did a really great job of making the overlook into an actual character in The Shining, mm -hmm. the book. And so I have a feeling Stephen King probably excels at making the Marston house a character just like the Overlook was a character. Mm -hmm. but we didn't get time to set it up. Plus, we uh, completely eliminate the whole previous owner was a bad guy. We mention it slightly, but we don't like really delve into it. And we're kind of leaning into it just being gross inside to make it feel evil. So when he hesitates to go in, it just feels dumb. Like, Ben, you're a right. grown-ass man. Nut up or shut up. Get the fuck in the house. Mark went in. Susan went in. Mark didn't hesitate. And the doctor guy is like, the fuck is wrong with you? Get in this house. And he's like, well, hang on. Let me get something out of my tote bag. Because <laughs> he's got like the bag under his arm. He needed an open top tote bag because he keeps having to rummage through it. And he has a to nurse. like hold it underneath and like rummage through it. He should have just had like a side bag he could have gone through. Yeah. Come on. Have you not watched Buffy? So he goes into the house. They finally go into the house. And almost immediately... Um, the doctor guy gets killed. Well, Mark shows up. They try to get Mark to leave. Mark refuses to leave. They try to beat Mark up to get him to leave. Mark refuses to leave. Mark just refusing to leave is a consistent theme. Well, and another piece of info here is we did we got one last scene with the constable. Oh yeah, the constable Val Vladimir Harkonnen. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like, oh, you're staying. Well, I'm I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah, with. My with all the people that I care about personally. Yeah. Um, here I got something. I was like, oh, he's gonna deputize him. No, nope, he just gives him <laughs> no, a gun. No, he just gives him a gun. He's like, here, this will help you. Maybe yeah. this will help you. Maybe this will help anyway, you. The so doctor we have a guy, gun. The doctor guy gets impaled on antlers, which is another I mean, that's yeah. what happens in the Lost Boys too. Yeah. Which that's... was actually supposed to be a way for them to be able to bring David back. Cause he doesn't get staked with wood. He gets staked uh, on the antlers. Eh. I'm kind of glad that never materialized because it's... Anyway, we haven't done Lost Boys, but this isn't the Lost Boys podcast. So he gets impaled on antlers. And so Ben is at the bottom of the stairs and he's like, no, <laughs> come back. And Straker starts coming down the steps because at this point we found out Straker's not just a familiar. He's like, he's pretty badass because he picks up the doctor and runs him down. And stakes him on the on the antlers. And then yep. he's coming down the steps. And it takes like five bullets to stop him. But finally he's just like. Yeah. And he just grinds his face into that carpet. Which every time Ben runs in to get his bag. He kicks up all this dirt from the carpet. <laughs> God, this is so hard for me. <laughs> uh, anyway. I mean a lot happens here. Finally we go down to the basement. Because they're like maybe. Maybe 
the the vampire's coffin is in the basement and not the upstairs bedroom. Hmm. Hmm. And they actually asked Straker where he took Susan. Mark asks Straker where he took Susan. She he says where she was wanted to go anyway. Or I took her to the man she was looking for. Or whatever. He doesn't he doesn't answer any questions, which is nice. I love a non monologuing bad guy. Right. He's like oh, I, I don't. I owe love you Straker's any. dialogue with the constable. Oh, every time. Uh, yeah. I I like when we get a a comp like a complex witty villain yeah he's completely in control of the situation he believes he's completely in control of the situation he is completely in control of the situation and he has absolutely nothing to fear he is completely confident and so he is able to really bandy words with the constable and the constable actually is played as a very smart character he's not bumbling right it is literally that a smart character is outwitted by another smart character. You don't have to create a dumb character in order to let your villain get away with what he needs to get away with. And this is this is the goal, y'all. Okay? <laughs> this is what we should be shooting for. I, I just had to... I didn't DNF, but I have set aside a book that I was going to read. And it's a book... I've read by the, another book by this author as well. And I also DNF'd that book. And I think I referred to it as um, driving a wedge in with the plot hammer, where <laughs> you just need something to happen. And so in order to make it happen, you have to create this situation that feels unbelievable. Like, there's no way the constable, like the head of the police in this town, is an idiot. Hopefully, not an idiot. And so he's not played as an idiot. He's played as a... He is suspicious of Straker and um, Kurt the entire time. And Ben. And Ben. He's immediately suspicious of everybody. And he does not hold on to, uh-oh, Ben might have done it. As soon as he has like, okay, couldn't have been you, we drop it. And he's back to being suspicious of the actual right. bad he's guy. He's not like pridefully suspicious. Right. And so even the scene where he's talking about like the black suit. Hey, you're not wearing your black suit today. Oh, no. I decided to change it up. Oh, okay. Any reason? No, maybe they just needed cleaning. Cool. I'd like to see your black suit. Well, actually, I have two of them. Cool. Oh, I'd love to see both of them. Is that an order? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, I do. I, yes. Please bring them into town. Okay, great. Yeah. And then when he comes down, he's like, am I under some suspicion? And he says, yes. He's like, okay. Some. Some. Yeah. Yeah. He's oh, like, it's okay. Great. And then he he's he does such a good job of sending out like I'm I'm innocent, I'm cooperating. Yeah. And then like after the constable says, You're under some suspicion, then he sits down with the constable. Yeah. And, and like leaning forward, like, okay, well, I'm planning to be around here for a long time. I don't want to start off like a relationship with the authorities on the wrong foot. I, whatever you need, let yep. me know. And I want you to know that I know that I don't have to do this. Yeah. I'm voluntarily cooperating with you because I want 
I want to be a contributing member of this community. Right. And I'm sure if we rewatched this, you would see a lot of double entendre in his in his dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like he's talking about how they're trying to set up a business here. They're hoping to establish a reputation in the region. Yes. He doesn't say yeah. what kind of reputation. So we get smart characters, smart dialogue. It's great. This is actually this this movie is great for that. Does it have a ton of plot? No, because immediately from here, we go to the basement and they're like, where could it be? And this is I was like, oh, my God, that door was so hidden. (laughs) (laughs) The wooden plank door, the wooden plank door in in the the stone wall. wall. Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, the guy can pick locks. Mark can pick locks, but he breaks the lock of one hammer. It doesn't really matter. Mark was probably like, he needs this more than I need this. So he breaks open the lock, and of course, inside there's a very elaborate coffin, and then just a bunch of vampires. Sleeping vampires. Sleeping vampires. And so they pull the coffin out. And Do- Mar- Mar- um, Ben just beast modes this coffin out. Yeah. Because <laughs> Mark is like, it's going to be too heavy. And he's like, uh-uh, ain't going to fucking be too heavy. And so he drags it I need it to up. get to Susan. <laughs> I'll do anything. So he pulls the coffin out, and they don't reshut the door. But they keep pausing to look at the window for really long periods of time. This is when it slowed down a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. I was just like, please just open the coffin and stake this yeah, guy. Yeah, it's like the last 25 minutes of but the But the whole staking scene is really brutal because he's trying to stake him. The Kurt wakes up, stops him, but he ends up driving the stake into his chest anyway. And he loses it a little bit because he's hammering on this stake and he's like, it's it's pretty brutal. Usually staking is just like, pap, pap, okay. Right. And the brutal part is like the vampire explodes in blood or something. But right. this and is then more Mark just like. goes and locks the door. Yeah, Mark gets the door shut. And then Kurt dissolves, which, you know, the 70s loved their melting wax figures. So that's what he'd do. But the funniest part is he's like, where's Susan? And then they cut back to, they cut back to Kurt. And finally his body is melted enough that the jaw just goes, click, open. Like, <gasps> Like the vampire's shocked. Where's yeah. Susan? <gasps> I don't know. Where could Susan be? Meanwhile, we finally use the gas can that has been strapped to the back of Ben's Jeep this entire time. Che- Chekhov's gas can. Chekhov's gas can. Because I was like, oh, we're going to use that gas can to burn something down. And sure enough, here it is. So they spread gas all around. They light the house on fire, which is probably uh, a good thing. That's the only way to clean this house, honestly. Yeah. So they light it on fire, and Mark is like, oh, no, the wind is blowing towards town. It's going to burn down the whole town. And they're <laughs> literally Ben is like, good. I'm pretty sure the whole town is vampires at this point, so not a problem. Yeah. So they end up leaving, driving away, and this is when we cut to the two years into the future again, and we're at the church, and we rewatch the scene where the they must have spent a lot of money on the glowing... Oh, yeah, absolutely. The glowing water. And it turns out that the vampire that has found them is Susan. And all the other vampires look real, real gross and real, real dead. But Susan does not. She's well fed. I guess. Susan was like, I'm I'm immortal. I'm forever. We can be forever together. We can love each other forever. And he's like, cool. So he leans in. She's going to bite him. And then he stakes her. And then we, we find out that they're on the run because... The vampires from Salem's Lot are pursuing them. And even though they've killed Susan, there's more. Because there were like a thousand people in this town. (laughs) They all got turned. And the only one that died was Larry the real estate agent. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, and the doctor. And the doctor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and his Susan's teacher dead. friend who had a heart oh, attack Jason, and yeah. then we never came back to. Yeah, because he revoked his invitation for Yeah. for the Mike Gravedigger. Yeah. Who did a weird tongue thing? But it's all right. So, that's really the end of the movie. I don't know. I'm looking forward to reading the book. A lot of times um earlier Stephen King, the book is better. And then we flip for a little while where he was really writing just to be made into TV shows and movies. Yeah. And so usually the TV show or movie is better. And then I think we're back the other way now because a lot, I mean, some of his stuff is getting adapted, but I don't know. He's an older, more mature writer now. Anyway, I'm looking forward to reading the book now that I have it so that I can kind of compare and contrast. I think it'll be interesting. I know The Shining is significantly better as a book than it is as a movie. I said what I said. I said what I said. Every time I comment on a post, I'm like, have you read the book, though? Because the book is actually better. People are like, uh, agree to disagree. Like, have you read the book, though? Did you read the book? They don't need to read the book. The book because better. Stanley Kubrick is a genius. <laughs> the book is better. The book is about... Anyway, we had a discussion about this last night because we were talking about how Stephen King really likes to insert himself into his novels certain novels he likes to put himself into and it's really when he's working something out he's working out some some personal trauma yeah and like this is clearly him he is a combination of mark and ben the novelist the weird kid that's obsessed with horror and the occult and and the novelist and the writer yeah the true believer novelist and then we have in the shining the main character is a writer who is going through a rough patch because With of his a substance, substance abuse, abuse problem. And so he takes this chance to try to be better and ultimately cannot defeat his demons and is taken over by them. Literally is taken over by them. And, you know, I think that's great. That's what story is all about. As a writer, if you, some of people's best work is usually when they are in putting something of themselves into it to try to work something out because then it's meaningful to the writer. It's not just intended to entertain. It's intended to, you know, right. he, teach he's a not lesson just, through metaphor and symbolism. He's not funding the addition on his house. He's right. He's not building a new kitchen. Stuff. Right. Cause sometimes, sometimes Stephen King just needed a new kitchen and that's why he wrote <laughs> that book. And sometimes he needed to say something, and I think you can tell. We talked to um, Haldane, uh, Haldane B. Doyle, who wrote the uh, Vitreous Womb book that we d- we talked with, and we had an interview with him, which is really good. If you haven't listened to it, you should go check it out. But he was saying that he tried to just do write the book because he wanted to write the book, because he wanted to say something, because he thought he thinks you can tell the difference. And I agree. You can tell the difference between something that is made because somebody wants to say something and something that is made purely for profit. It is okay to profit off of art as well. It's okay to make a profit off of a passion project. That is never what we're saying. What we're saying is there is a difference between the passion project that makes you money and the money project that's just to make money. Right. I feel like we need to clarify that sometimes. It's okay to make money. We would also like to make money on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but. But it's not the goal. Right. And it's not the goal. Yeah. We don't really work 
do, we didn't really do anything to make money. I know. That's fine. I, I'm just happy to be here. As usual, every once in a while, we, we come back to this. And I just feel like it's important to to make that note because um, it gets to where people feel embarrassed about making money. Like, I can't create this thing to make money. That negates it entirely. And that's entirely untrue. Right. It's okay to make a thing that you love and then want to make money from that thing that you love. So this is our second to last Vampires of 1979. We're going to take a wee break, even though I promised that next week would be Vlad Tepes. We're going to push that off one more week. And I'm actually going to publish an interview that we did with a fellow named George, Dr. George Paxinos, who has the third most cited scientific publication ever. I think until recently. Until recently. The Rat Brain and Stereotaxic Coordinates. So Anyway, know. he wrote a novel. <laughs> anyway, he wrote a fiction novel. The only fiction novel he This world-renowned neuroscientist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he also wrote and a novel. And he talked to us, which was pretty <laughs> cool. Um, it was really fun, and we really had a good time interviewing him, and he was very thoughtful, and it was – we really enjoyed it. And I'm going to go ahead and get that up and put it out so that people can – Take take a look at it and do check out his book. Buy his book. It's called A River Divided. Um, it was good. It was thought provoking. It was a neuroscientist writing a novel exploring the idea of nature versus nurture in the context of his own lifelong pursuit of environmental change, which he self describes as a failure, and questioning whether. We have the capacity to save ourselves or not. So it was good. Um, do go check that out. And have a happy holiday season, however you celebrate, because we will see you all again on the other side. And remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.